0: So we, we are in a, in a series, um, if you're new, welcome, um, if you're just visiting, welcome, if you haven't been for a while and not sure what we're doing, this is the part where, where I'm just going to unpack some stuff from the Bible and hopefully it helps. And like I said, the, the goal would be that um, you and I would be freer at the end of this. So we're doing a series, what we're calling the standard, because at the end of the day, each and every one of us live by a standard. In every area of our life, there's, there's a certain thing, an expectation internally that we have in almost every sphere of our life, but oftentimes we don't actually look at what sets those standards. What are the standards by which we live? Is it because that's just what everyone in the world does, so therefore I'll do that? Is that because what I was brought up to believe, therefore I'll just follow in the footsteps of mum and dad? Or, or is there another standard by which we can uh, consciously live by and that we can trust because so many of the standards that we just live with by default, the things or the people or the situations surrounding those standards that are set are not worthy to be followed. They don't have our best interest at heart. And so, for us, our focus, Anna and I, over the last two years, is really to shift how we approach church and ministry. And it shouldn't be a surprise because it's really church and faith 101. But our our focus is less on events. Unless I'm making this thing the, the be all and end all expression of our faith, but our, our main focus is on your discipleship, your personal journey with Jesus, and your growth in your faith. And so everything we, we do is, is not just geared towards gathering a crowd and having an event, but is geared towards empowering and equipping you to grow in your faith so that you can become more like Jesus as He would want us to be. So that being said, The series is called The Standard because what we've found to discover is that when Jesus becomes the standard, then we become disciples. And we can't truly be a disciple of Jesus if He's not the standard by which we live. But as soon as He is, and our standard is not our circumstance, our standard is not our experience, our standard is not our preferences, our standard is what Jesus teaches in the Word of God, then we become followers, disciples of Jesus, which is awesome. And so we've been looking uh, at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first public address, his first preach, if you like, where he starts to reveal how the kingdom of heaven works. And so, so here we get a really good picture of what his standard is. And so we could do topical preaching and just we're going to speak on this topic and then that topic and that topic and we can then jump around Scripture and have a good old time and that's great and that's awesome but we've decided for for the next six months um, which is against everything that church growth experts would say you should do with a teaching series it's four to six weeks and any longer than that you lose people's attention. Well this is week 13 and I think we're doing okay and uh, we haven't even got out of chapter five yet Um, but we want to just tiptoe through the scriptures. Because topical preaching, bouncing around week to week, is great for an event because it keeps things spicy, it keeps it exciting. That's like doing a cha-cha at church. But the goal is not just an exciting cha-cha service. The goal is for us to actually hold a mirror to ourselves and go, how am I really going? Am I just coming to church to fill a seat? Am I am I really? breathing in secondhand spirituality. You cannot look at someone lifting weights and expect to get buff. They will, you won't. But too often Christians watch other Christians live a life of self-discipline, live a life where their spiritual disciplines are in place. They'll fast, they'll read the Word, they'll pray. And then the outflow of that, the overflow of that, that private time with Jesus is expressed publicly. And people that don't have a private life will consume what is being um, the fruit bearing of somebody else's spirituality. That's called secondhand spirituality. And it's probably a greater pandemic in the church than COVID. Because that's not how disciples grow. We grow by sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching, humbling our heart, being teachable, and then responsive to what he's teaching us to do. That's how we grow. And all the all the online prophets we watch and the little sound bites we get on Instagram and all the little you know devotions of the day stuff we read are all great, but they are supplementary. They're not primary. The word of God and the presence of God. For me, alone is primary. That's where I grow. And that's where I lift weights in the Spirit to get stronger. So I say all that to say, this is what we're doing. We're going through, because the goal is discipleship. The goal is spiritual growth for all of us, right? So we've been looking through Sermon on the Mount. So we spent the first eight or nine weeks looking at the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the persecuted. So many people are blessed. Lottie, Pastor Lottie from Lifehouse came and and talked on Salt and Light into that series, which is brilliant. Two weeks ago, we looked at uh, how Christ came to fulfill the law, and if you were here that Sunday, thank you for being so patient. We we went and broke down Romans chapter eight, which was exhausting, I know, but you guys sat through it, and we were able to see what Jesus had accomplished in the law by what God had done, who we are, and what we have as a result, and just see this beautiful image unfold from Romans chapter eight, which was brilliant. And then last week, we looked at anger and lust, which um, great combo. What a great combo. Um, but it was it was a powerful day last Sunday, and all these messages are available online if you want to go back and listen to them. But, um, but today, we journey on to Matthew chapter five, we're up to verse thirty-one, thirty-two, and we've we'll got that on the screen. It was also said, "Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce." But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If you need to leave right now, <laughs> I wouldn't blame you. I, I have wrestled all week with this message. I've never been nervous about preaching before, ever. Well, that's not, probably not true. But never about the content of a message. I actually rang a couple of people this week and said, can you pray for me? I rang a few pastor buddies he said, Dude, have you guys ever preached on this? Never. Haven't touched it. Because let's be honest, I've done this, you've probably done this, you read this and you morning devotion, skip, too hard, that's full on. Or we go, mm, yeah, but that was probably, we'll put that in a justification basket, that was probably for then and there's probably a good theological reason why that doesn't fit us today. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not. And if I'm to be really honest, talking to Anna about this, I was tempted to skip this altogether. I go, this is too hard. And do you know why? Because I know that there are about 30 plus people that call this church their home. There are 30 people in this flock that I pastor that are in this category. So it's a real issue. And I love you too much to be lazy and not preach on this topic. And so the balance is hard because I want to honor Scripture. My first and primary job as a, as a communicator is to honor God's holy Word. In fact, the Bible says that I'm doubly accountable because I'm a teacher, which is scary. But at the same time, too, of honoring Scripture, I want to I want to bring hope to the hearer. I don't want anyone to feel condemned walking away from here today or feeling less than. I want people to feel more than. I want God's grace to be so prevalent every time I communicate that you walk away feeling, God is good. He is for me. I might not have my life all together, but let's be honest, who does? But God is good. He's got it all together. And if I stay close to Him, it's going to be okay. So I've, we're going to do some heavy lifting this morning because I love you, because I love God's Word, And because I know that you would struggle with that in your devotional life. And probably, if I'm honest, don't have a category to put that in. Because it doesn't fit the world we live in. And it might not fit the world you live in. But we're called to live in this world, but not of this world. So we have to find a category to put this in so that we have a theology around this particular issue. And at that point is where I pray. Father, I just thank you this morning that your word is alive and living and it really does cut through the bone and marrow to the very core of who we are as a person. Lord, I pray that today you would help me to honor your word and also bring hope to all of us here today. Lord God, would you help my words be clear? Let me get out of the way so your spirit can flow through me today. In Jesus' name, amen. We must believe, sorry, not believe, must decide whether Jesus becomes the standard or our circumstances or our preferences become the standard. That's the tipping point. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to do a flyover of every time I've found, because we're talking about divorce, right? This is what we're talking about. So I'm going to find every time in the Scripture that it teaches on divorce. I'm going to break it down, digest it a bit, then I've got a few thoughts at the end that I want to package together for us. So in saying that, we're going to do a little bit of heavy lifting this morning. So this might not be like a typical Sunday service, but like I said, I love you guys. I want to really open this up for us all to have a healthy theology around this issue. So the first one I want to go to, and they'll be all on the screen, so you don't have to scroll in your own bubble if you don't want to, but you can if you want to. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, this poor woman. How bad is that? Bunch of jerks. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you should not bring sin upon the land. Cool. Interesting passage. So Jim marries Sally. Jim doesn't like Sally. So in that particular time in history, if he wasn't happy with her, he just flick her off. Send her out with a certificate of divorce, it's all good. Go on to the next one. Sally is then free to marry Bill. Bill doesn't like Sally, gets over her, so he flicks her off. But then Sally can't go back and marry Jim again. So what are we learning from this? This seems bizarre. When you go back into history... At this particular juncture, women were not treated well. They were valued less. They they were treated very, very poorly. In fact, if you read in Deuteronomy chapter 22, the penalty, according to the law, for adultery was that she would be stoned to death. She would be sentenced to death. So then if if Jim is, is unhappy with Sally, and it could be for any reason, he could just become bored of her, she may have done nothing wrong. She might have been the, the most beautiful, loving, caring wife. But if he grew tired of her and sent her off out of his house, she got kicked out, it would be culturally assumed that she was an adulteress. And that's why the marriage dissolved. So then she could be dragged before the courts and stoned to death. And Moses was like, this is crazy. This is... This is not what God intended in Genesis chapter 2 when He put man and woman together. It says, it's not good that man should be alone and let man not divide what God has put together. This is not what God had in mind. You guys are crazy. Why are you devaluing women? Why are you treating them like there's something you can just take and leave whenever you want them? So Moses put this law in place. At least if you're going to kick her out, give her a certificate of divorce so it's a legal binding document that if she does get caught out in the streets away from you, she's got something that actually is credibility for her to then remarry in the future and to save herself from being wrongfully accused and killed. And that could happen time and time again. So it was this small little tweak in the law that actually was put in place to protect the women. Which is why we read in, 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 the, in the Gospels that Jesus met the Sumerian woman at the well who had five husbands and the one she was with wasn't her husband because this system had outplayed for her. Moved on, moved on, moved on. Does that make sense? Yeah. Not now, but probably did back then. Next scripture is Malachi chapter two, verse six sixteen. The man who hates and divorces his wife says, "The Lord God of Israel does violence to the one he should protect," says the Lord God Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Next passage, Mark 10, verse 2 to 12. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, because they were jerks, uh, and they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. We just went through all that, right? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this Commandment, Right? Because you were jerks, because you were treating women poorly, Moses put this order in place. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house of the, the disciples asked him again. So they Jesus taught this up to the Pharisees. He shut them down. And the disciples were still so perplexed about what Jesus was talking about marriage. Later that night in the house, they asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Next. Luke 16, 18 everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery are you seeing why I found this such a hard message to preach and to write finally 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to the married I give this charge not I but the Lord the wife should not separate from her husband But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, assuming they haven't been divorced. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband." Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved or bound by the regulations of marriage. God has called you to peace. for how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife? So there's a lot to unpack from those passages. This is not a Bible college lecture, so I've got to be careful not to go down that path, but I think it's really important that we get an overall view of what the entirety of Scripture says because that's not what you're going to get in your morning devotion when you stumble across that passage and don't have a category to put it in. So let's see what we can draw out of this because the whole idea, right, of this series is to figure out what is Jesus' standard on stuff? If I'm truly a disciple and Jesus is the standard that I follow, what are his standards on these issues? And like I said, this issue is real for us. This issue is real for society. This issue is real for the world. So here's a couple of things. The first thing, marriage is a really big deal. And God takes it very, very seriously. Um... And the reason he does is because it's a covenant, it's not a contract. There's a difference between the two. A contract is, I will do this if you do this. And if you don't do that, I won't do this, and therefore our agreement is dissolved. A A covenant is, I am going to do this for you, even if you don't do anything in return. Because I'm going to pledge my commitment to you or this in this issue, in this matter. So that's why God takes it seriously. And when we, when a when a divorce happens or a marriage breaks down, it it's not just a covenant that a husband and wife have had broken, but there's a covenant that each of them had with God that gets broken as well. So there's this third component. There's this 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 extra spiritual dynamic that happens because when we when when Christians get married, it's there's it's a symbol of like I've got to be careful how I say this because I don't want to be blasphemous, but there's there's this Symbolness of the Trinity. There's this threeness in this one entity. That's what marriage is like. And so when, when a divorce happens, it breaks that, not just between the man and wife, but between God as well. So it's a big deal. God takes it very seriously. If you're thinking about getting married, keep thinking about getting married. Think long and hard and don't jump into it. Don't rush it. This is a lifelong commitment that God is talking about. The second thing I would say is that. Divorce should be the final option, not the first option. The final option, not the first option. Because the stakes are high. We must be willing to fight to keep marriages intact as much as is possible with us. Happy marriages do not happen by accident, healthy marriages do not happen by accident. They're a result of commitment, of love. Mutual understanding, sacrifice, and, and a lot of hard work. What are the grounds for divorce then, if it gets to that point? Well, Jesus says here that adultery is, is, is a straight-up legitimate grounds for divorce. Um, even then, I would say just because it's grounds for divorce doesn't mean you have to. It doesn't mean you should. Um, many marriages have worked through this tragedy and this less than ideal situation. And I think if we, if we think about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's role as comforter and guide is ultimately to steer us all towards reconciliation. And so even if that does happen or has happened, I would say do whatever you can to see if you can work towards reconciliation. It's worth fighting for. Again, we saw in, in 1 Corinthians that if there's an unbelieving spouse and they walk away, that's fine too. Obviously, death nullifies the marriage as well. Um, what, about, what about physical or emotional abuse or other types of abuse in a marriage? Uh, is that grounds for divorce? Sadly, the Bible's pretty silent on this issue. There, there is not a passage that says, husbands, don't hit your wives. Wives, don't throw knives um, or shoes or whatever it is. But here's my theology on it, for what it's worth. Because this is a major issue. Like the statistics about domestic violence and abuse in marriages is, is disgusting and appalling in our own nation, in our own, in our own city. We've done a bit of work with uh, Warina Women's Refuge here in town and, and partnered with them for a number of years. And just to hear the stories and the statistics is horrific. So what, what would you say then to... to to that space in marriage because if the Bible's not clear on it well Ephesians 5.25 says that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her yeah but just before that Justin it says that wives should submit to their husbands it's all about that as the head I don't care about that I care about my role Because I will guarantee a wife will submit to her husband biblically, not as a slave, and not as like a, a doormat, but biblically as an equal partner with a different role. She will submit as a response to a husband who has laid down his life for her. Like Jesus laid down his life for the church. We love Christ why because he first loved us he initiated his love with us by laying down his life for us so we now then can find our role as submissive to him because he demonstrated his love for us that greater love has no one than to lay down his life for his friends so when we see that in Jesus and we hear that about Jesus it makes us easier for us the bride of Christ to yield to him and be partners with him in his mission for this earth And so in marriage, it's the same thing. Husbands, we love our wife like Christ loved the church. And what's Christ's plan for the church? For her to flourish, for her to grow, for her to be confident, for her to have influence, for her to be magnificent. So as a husband, that's my goal for my wife, for her to flourish, for her to grow, for her to be confident, for her to be magnificent, for her to have influence. And when she knows that that's my heart for her, and when I demonstrate that by laying down my life to serve her, it's easy for her then to respond to be the equal partner in that marriage that the Bible would say. So going back to my original point, if there's abuse in a relationship, and I know it can go both ways, but statistics would say that usually men are the aggressor, Um, but this this goes both ways. I would say that's violated because your job is not to beat your wife. Your job is to beat yourself into self-discipline so you can lay down your life for your wife. And if that's not happening, then you've violated a beautiful commandment of how marriage should look. And if you're on the receiving end of that, I would graciously say, walk away. If reconciliation and repentance is not in play, if there's no mediation and there's no genuine sense of, I need to get this right, then I think you have every grounds to walk away and not feel spiritually guilty, not be manipulated by spiritual abuse thoughts. that was say, oh, but you know, God says, no, 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 no. I think the church historically has done a bad role in saying, well, because the Bible is silent, therefore you, can, you have to stay. It's like, no, no. He violated that years ago when he lifted his hand. Is that right? Is that too heavy? I just, like I said, I, want to, I love you guys. I want to be thorough. I don't want to just do this as a, a gimmicky injustice. The fourth thought is, is: so my marriage dissolves. Things don't go well. We've tried reconciliation. It's just, and so we do, we do divorce. Okay, it happens. Can I remarry biblically? This is where it gets tricky. Old Testament is a little bit clearer. We read that in Deuteronomy that, yep, certificate of divorce happens, okay, you can you can go remarry um, as long as it's done according to the law but don't, don't forget Genesis 2.16, God doesn't want man to separate what he united so we've got to just wrestle with that. New Testament is a bit difficult. We've already talked about how death, adultery or an unbelieving spouse that walks away, they're all valid reasons for divorce and remarriage. Other than that, it's, it's complicated, it's tricky. Jesus This verse in Matthew is pretty specific about calling it what it is. And it sounds harsh and it sounds unrealistic and it sounds so um, incompatible with 21st century living because we have progressed morally to a place where we we look at these archaic rules and go, so out of touch. But have we honestly evolved morally as a society? with all of our technologically advancements, with all of our um, intellectual discoveries, have we advanced morally as a society? I would argue we have regressed terribly because we no longer have a standard by which to uphold ourselves. We've embraced this, this thought of radical individualism where I do what I want because that's what I feel like and how dare you tell me any different because my life's about me, you do your life. but as a Christian that's, that's not the worldview that we hold we hold the worldview that it's no longer I who live but it's Christ that lives in me the standard and this life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in him as the standard because he loved me and gave himself up for me and demonstrated his love for me so therefore I can follow him that's not what the world promises the world promises you do you boo the world promises don't be humble don't be teachable you've got the truth in you you are the truth you're what you want well, how is that going for us as a, as a society? How is that really going? I think we're morally bankrupt as a society because there's no standards anymore. And I know that what, what we're saying here about divorce and remarriage doesn't sound compatible with 21st century living or 21st century morality, but we're going to come to a decision if we are truly followers of Christ. We're going to, when Paul said to Timothy that, that all Scripture is useful is God-breathed and useful for correcting, teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Either it is or it isn't. So again, I say, is, is Jesus the standard or is your experience and your preference your standard? Both will have dramatically different outcomes. So what do we do with all this? what do we do if we've been through that we've been through a divorce and maybe maybe it was a result of things that weren't listed biblically and so therefore we've got this problem this dilemma first I'd say remain humble remain teachable remain responsive to the word of God I think remarriage is, is okay contextually 1 Corinthians seven nine says if you cannot control your urges then you should get married okay because we're designed for community we're designed for relationship right we're just like marriage is a really good thing like God said right at the beginning it's not good that men should be alone so, so he gets the inner desires of our heart so first remain humble teachable responsive to God if we can't control it get married three have a revelation of the significance that God puts on marriage and translate that into the context of your current marriage. Because what is, what is done is done, right? We cannot time travel and fix the past. If we could, we'd all make our lives completely different and we'd all be way richer. So we, we can't fix what is done but we're left in the rubble of What is? So what we do today matters about how we rebuild for tomorrow. So how we rebuild for tomorrow starts with being humble. It starts with being teachable. It starts with being responsive to the Word of God. It starts with having a revelation of what, how God sees marriage And bringing that into your current context. And I will say this this. this Hear the spirit with which I say this. And the spirit is not license giving, the spirit is, is freedom giving. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. it's not there's grace for that there's repentance for that the unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit it's seeing the hand of God move in a situation and calling it demonic we'll see a picture in John chapter 8 again the Pharisees we already read about them trying to trap Jesus trying to trick him Drag this woman in in by a hair. Stand her up in front of Jesus, the rabbi, the priest, the the so called quote unquote Messiah. Hey, Jesus, (laughs) we caught this woman in the act of adultery. The law says, you know, we read it, Deuteronomy 22, the Lord says she should be stoned to death. What do you say? And they're like rubbing their hands together. He's sweet, man. We got him. Finally, we've caught someone transgressing the law, black and white. Here it is. They pick up the stones, ready to go. We go, finally, we've got her and we've got him. Jesus looks at her. Remember, I said at the very start, every time we encounter God, we should walk away free. If we walk away bound, we've, we've, had, a, we've had an interaction with religion, not with Jesus. So they pick up this stone. Yes, finally, we're f- trying to figure out how to get him. He always just tricks us with these words and such. But now, what does Jesus do? You who are without sin, cast the first stone. You who've got it all figured out, who've ticked every box, who live the perfect life according to all the letter of the law, You throw the first stone. Let's get this show on. Let's kill this woman. And what happened? One by one, rock fell to the ground. Rock fell to the ground. Rock fell to the ground. Every single one of her accusers dropped their rocks of accusation, dropped their rocks of pride, dropped their rocks of of crucifixion, dropped their rocks of arrogance, dropped their rocks of judgment, of spite, of whatever it was and they left and Jesus looks at this woman could you imagine she's walked into a death chamber she's walked into the firing cell her life was literally going to end that afternoon the fear dragged in the shame the guilt the condemnation sobbing, weeping, hair a mess over her face and just in the fetal position and Jesus looks at her, takes her by the hand, lifts her up and says, look around. Where are your accusers? They're gone. Neither do I condemn you. Be free. And sin no more. They were right, you probably shouldn't have done that. That's not good. But we can't hold others to a standard that we aren't filling ourselves. So your accusers are not here. And I've come to set the captives free. So you walked in about to die and you walk out with brand new life. That's the gospel. We walk in to the presence of Jesus spiritually dead because of our sin. And we walk out spiritually alive because of his grace. And the accusers who want to, and oftentimes our accusers are the internal voices in our head trying to tear us down, take away our confidence, trick us into thinking that God is is not loving and kind and good. Other times those voices are religious zealots who are masking holiness or who, who, sorry, um, are masking their own sinfulness with religious holiness because behind the rock is a whole world of sin that they want no one to know about because they're just going to be the loudest voice in the room to bring condemnation for those who are just like them. So, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Not a license to sin, do what we like. It's a license to be free, to live his life that we can't live in our own strength because we always fall short. 1 Timothy 1.15. This, the Apostle Paul, arguably the best theologian to ever grace this earth. Two-thirds of the New Testament is written by Paul most of what you understand about the Christian life was written by Paul. Like, they don't get much better. Like, he's like an all-time heavy hitter. Writing a letter to Timothy, his young protege. has a very large church. He says, Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying and it's deserving of full acceptance. That's a big call. Like, Hey, Timothy, like this is right at the very start of the letter. Like we're 15 verses in of his first letter to Timothy. Hey, this is really trustworthy. This is really important. This deserves your full attention and acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a big claim, but that's not his main point. His main point is after this, this comma, of which I am the worst the most influential Christian, theologian, thinker, man of God, leaving a legacy through the art of letter writing to a young, his young protege. is saying, yeah, Christ came to save sinners. He came to take broken people and set them free. Of which I'm the worst. How humble is that? How big is that? And when we get a revelation that we are broken people, only saved by grace, then we can treat others with the same spirit to help them receive the freedom that God has for them as well. Here's my final thought. I've said this before. This is really simply how I see, this is how I see the devil breaking down the world. And then when you flip it on its head, that's exactly how I see God building the world. And the devil breaks the world like this. gets into your mind, the individual, messes with some stuff, some thoughts. Uh, you know, especially in the, area of, in your marriage in particular. You deserve better. He's not good enough. she's not good enough. The way they did this, they're not meeting my needs. So plants this seed inside of you and starts to break you down. And then, and then he'll get into your marriage and start to cause division in, in marriage. You start to fight more, start to disagree. You start to think about stuff you shouldn't think about. And then if he can break down the marriage, that flows through to the family. And then the families will start to break down. And you see from time and time again when, when marriage is split and the families go a bit wonky and it gets a bit... And when, when that happens and families break down, Communities start to break down, and you know, standards become dropped. There's this, everything just becomes a bit like loose and weird, and there's all these sorts of blended family situations, which sometimes can be a beautiful thing, but sometimes it just causes a lot of chaos. I'm talking macro level, so don't feel like I'm judging anybody on a micro level. This is just what I see happening across humanity. And then finally, once communities break down, society breaks down, and we find ourselves in this moralistic wasteland that we are in today. But see, God builds the world exactly the same way. He sets you free from your sin and your shame, takes you out of darkness into light, places you in a marriage, teaches you to lay down your life for your spouse, to serve them, to to, to be joined together in this beautiful three-way covenant between you and them and God. So that that would then build this beautiful, flourishing family, and I know not all families are perfect, but I'll just go with me on this analogy. But when families are healthy, communities become healthy, and when communities become healthy, society becomes healthy. And isn't it interesting that the, the devil is a deceiver? He's, he's a counterfeiter. He'll he'll take a godly system and corrupt it, and totally. Decimate what God planned for human flourishing and beauty. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning. Like truly, I thank you. I thank you for my own my own salvation. That you set me free from my own sin and my own shame and my own condemnation from just making choices that were not in line with your best for my life and I thank you that you scoop me up with your grace and your love and your mercy and welcome me into your family. Help me not look down my nose with religious pious at those who might not have had that yet but help me be a distributor of the grace freely gifted to me that I would freely gift that grace and mercy to others. That they too would be able to encounter the freedom that comes from a relationship with you. Lord, I thank you for this topic this morning. Lord, it's such a tricky topic. It's such a prickly topic. And, um, Lord, I pray that we all would walk away today less legalistic and more in love with you and your grace and your spirit. For those who might have gone through this area of divorce and remarriage, I pray for comfort I pray for hope I pray for strength I pray that the decisions they make today would shape them for a brighter future that therefore those of us who are in Christ there is no condemnation and that we would run to you with humility with teachability and responsiveness to be all you've called us to be Bless every family, bless every marriage, bless every relationship, Lord God, in this church. Let it honor you, let it bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.